Welcome to the Wagner Ministries International Podcast. As you listen to this message, our prayer is that you would be motivated and empowered to follow Christ and lead others to Him. Enjoy. God bless you, my friends. This is Evangelist Kevin Wagner, founder of Wagner Ministries International, welcoming you to our podcast today. My message today is on Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 7. In 53 AD, Paul started his third and last mission trip. By 54 AD, Paul finally made it back to Ephesus after spending a brief amount of time there earlier at the tail end of his second mission trip. It was here in Ephesus during the over two years he spent there that Paul did the most marvelous work of his marvelous life. Ephesus, a magnificent city of 225,000 people, was at the center of the imperial highway from Rome to the east and was in many ways the backbone of the Roman Empire. Ephesus was the capital and leading business center of the Roman province of Asia, part of modern-day Turkey. This city was a hub of sea and land transportation, and it ranked with Antioch in Syria and Alexandria in Egypt as one of the great cities on the Mediterranean Sea. Ephesus was called the Light of Asia, and as a busy seaport, the western end of the great trade route to the Euphrates River and the riches of the east. This city enjoyed great commercial prosperity. It was from here that Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians to counter several problems the church in Corinth was facing. And it was to the church here that Paul, while imprisoned later on in life, wrote his great letter to the Ephesians. While the prosperity of Ephesus was great, her chief glory was the Temple of Diana, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Built of the purest marble, this temple took 220 years to complete. Historians recall that worship of the false goddess Diana was a perpetual festival of sin. The influence of this cult later affected local churches in the area, as Revelation chapters 2 and 3 make clear. And yet, there is a great irony here. One cannot help but contrast the short-term glory of Ephesus with the permanent faith that Paul preached. Today, the name of the goddess Diana has virtually vanished from memory. In fact, on the site of her great temple today, nothing remains but a few fragments of broken marble. In fact, the village that has been built on the temple's foundations is named in memory of the Apostle John, Jesus' closest friend. To add even more insult to injury, vast multitudes of Diana worshippers even became Christians through Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Churches made up of these converts were founded for 150 kilometers around and the Ephesus of Diana soon became a leading center of the emerging Christian world. This reminds me of when, in the midst of the Enlightenment, when deism was spreading rapidly, the atheistic French philosopher Voltaire proclaimed that within 25 years the Bible would be forgotten and Christianity would be a thing of the past. Forty years after his death in 1778, the Bible and other Christian literature were being printed in what had once been Voltaire's very own home. God's got a great sense of humor, doesn't he? He really does love beating the enemy at his own game, setting up shop in the enemy's own backyard. And I just love watching God keep doing these things in the enemy's face time and time again. 
The Bible says that when Paul arrived in Ephesus, he found some disciples there right off the bat. Remember that some years earlier during Paul's brief stay in Ephesus, he would have left a small church that kept meeting under the leadership of people like Priscilla and Aquila. Apollos would have hung in Ephesus for a while, and by this time, the church there was starting to move. But it seems like these first disciples Paul ran into hadn't met Priscilla and Aquila or Apollos yet, because they had the same problem that Apollos had before he met Priscilla and Aquila. These disciples only knew the baptism of John. They hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit. You see, one of the great things that the Bible teaches is that when someone is baptized with Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit is released in that person's life. John's baptism couldn't give that because he couldn't give what he didn't have. Only Jesus could give it. Now, when we see this situation in Acts 19, we may be tempted to think that this controversy over the two types of baptisms is one of the irrelevant relics of ancient Christianity and to see nothing comparable to it in our churches today. Unfortunately, this is not so. Friends, the Bible is reminding us today that while the baptism of John may have disappeared, the thing that it stood for still remains. To only know John's baptism means to be searching after something you don't have yet. But to be baptized into Jesus means to be able to enjoy something that has already been given to you, but you, that you haven't fully explored yet. These two points of view are still around in our churches today. There are those for whom Christianity is like an engagement. It's striving after a great goal that you don't yet have. And there are others for whom Christianity is like a marriage, where you can rest in something great you already have, with lots of riches and beauty and surprises still to be discerned in this great relationship. Does this make sense to you today? Okay, let's try it this way. Both lives are active, but when you're just engaged, there's a certain amount of tension, uncertainty, and unfinished business about it, which marriage, at its best, knows nothing at all about. Engagement struggles to get to something good. Marriage is the enjoyment of something you already have, a firm, committed relationship with someone you love the most. Do you get the difference? With marriage, you can move on from something certain, solid, and complete. With engagement, that certain something isn't there yet. Marriage begins with something given to you, a public promise and trust, and proceeds to live out and develop and grow in the full implications of those things. Friends, the great mainstream of Christianity through the centuries has always followed the marriage route when it comes to baptism. It's something solid that God initiates and gives us. It's solid because God's a solid God. More than just a symbol of our on-again, off-again commitment to Jesus, baptism is God's wedding ring on our finger, saying, you're mine. Verse 6 says, When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. That's the way it should be. Paul devotes a whole chapter in 1 Corinthians to describing the biblical godly balance involved with the public use of tongues. Speaking in tongues is a great gift of the Holy Spirit, just like all the others are. The two unbiblical extremes that can happen with this gift are directly against what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 12. 
that every spirit-filled Christian must or should speak in tongues, and that the use of tongues publicly is okay even when there's no one around to interpret and tell everyone else what God was saying. The other extreme, having seen some of the misuse of the gift, is to say that any type of speaking in tongues is wrong today, since it's something not operating in Christians in these latter days. This too is not something that Paul is getting at. What he is saying is simply this. If the Holy Spirit has blessed you with the gift of tongues, use it as much as you can in your personal prayer life. And when you are led by God to share a message in tongues publicly, make sure that someone is there to interpret the message so that everyone can receive from God the message that he's speaking through you. I close with this today. In verse 2, Paul asks the 12 men from Ephesus a simple but pointed question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Friends, their reply was both very honest and very telling. No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. I'd like to rephrase Paul's question to us today. Would you be able to tell if the Holy Spirit were to leave your presence? This is a really wild question if you stop and think about it. Many times, we're content to pitch our tent where the glories evident. Seldom do we know the glories came and went. To quote one of my all-time favorite songs from the Christian rock band Petra. Those words are pointed and haunting, aren't they? As individuals and as a church, we need to constantly be on our guard against spiritual smugness. The Bible tells us to beware those of you who think you're standing strong lest you fall. Paul himself tells us that the Holy Spirit's power can be quenched in our life, just like our thirst can be quenched on a sweltering day with Powerade, or a candle can be blown out by persistent unbelief, sin, and neglecting to hear and obey what God's speaking to us. Why would I share this with you today? Because the Holy Spirit can be faked to a certain extent in our churches. It often takes a while for the effects of sin to make itself known, and in that interim time, things may look and sound the same, but eventually more and more people start realizing that something is missing. There is this powerful true story that I want to share with you. On Monday morning, April 25th, 1907, people going to work in London, England were shocked to see chalked on the front of the famous city temple, the word Ichabod. The newspapers carried pictures of the unspeakable desecration in their afternoon editions. A week or so later, a house painter came forward voluntarily to admit that he had chalked the word early that Monday morning. Asked in court why he had done such a sacrilegious thing, the house painter replied, Dr. Parker told me to do it. Dr. Parker, the former pastor, was long since dead. The puzzled court asked for an explanation. The painter explained that he was a Christian and a regular attendant at the city temple during the days when Dr. Joseph Parker was the preacher. He told how Dr. Parker had said that if ever the false gospel of the higher critics was preached in that place, Ichabod, which means the glory has departed, should be written over the front of the building. I did what Dr. Parker asked me to, sir. Sobering words for sobering times. 
I challenge you to pledge yourself that you will do your best to do God's best in everything you do. As always, my friends, I look so forward to our next podcast where we will move further into the book of Acts as the Holy Spirit uses His Word to help us walk daily in the power of God. Have a blessed day in Jesus. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by today's message. For more information regarding Wagner Ministries International, go to wagnerministries.org. And if you need prayer for anything, please email us at prayer at wagnerministries.org. God bless.